now. Uh, we're continuing our series, which will soon come to an end, but not yet. Life Lessons from the Holy Land. And tonight, I'd like for us to go to a somewhat interesting spot. It's uh, not a pleasant spot to be, but it's a significant spot. It's the wilderness of Judea. Uh, you're looking at it. It's desert, mountainous area, very little vegetation, uh, very little rainfall, less than two inches of annual rainfall a year here in the Judean wilderness. It's on the western side of the Dead Sea. It's south of Jerusalem. It's to the east of the Jordan River Valley, uh, to the, excuse me, to the west, to the east of it would be Jordan itself. And uh, it's largely uninhabited, but not entirely so. In fact, there are uh, critters there. Uh, there were in biblical times, and there are even today. You're looking at some interesting, well, they're mountain goats. They're an ibex, they're called, and they're extremely agile. They're used to being in these parts. And so, too, are certain nomadic people groups called Bedouin people. And those are Arab peoples who live uh, a nomadic existence. They move uh, in tents and by family from place to place. And they have uh, this uh, kind of existence down to a science. In fact, they've been living this way since the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the land. And so uh, there aren't many people in the area, but it is not completely uninhabited. The wilderness of Judea uh, has been historically a very good place to go to if you're on the run from somebody. If you're looking for a place to hide, I recommend the Judean wilderness. In fact, uh, David went there, you recall, uh, when he was trying to avoid the wrath of Saul. He went here to this place uh, because there are many caves here in which one could hide out, and so he did. Many significant biblical events occurred in this rather desolate area, the Judean wilderness. It's called that because it's in the southern province of Israel known as Judea. So it's the Judean Wilderness. Uh, John the Baptist was here. He did his preaching here in this particular area. And of course, his message was one of repentance, turn, change direction, be transformed. And not only was John the Baptist here as a preacher in the Judean wilderness, uh, but the one he preached of. Uh, the Lord Jesus himself was in this area. And you probably are familiar with the fact that not only was the Lord Jesus here in the Judean wilderness, but uh, so too uh, was the pretender to the throne, the adversary uh, of the brethren. Uh, so too was Satan here in the Judean wilderness. In fact, the Savior and Satan, Satan, uh, were here at exactly the same time, and the event is recorded for us in the Bible. Let's take a look at it. It's found in Matthew chapter 4, amongst other places, but let's focus our attention tonight on Matthew chapter 4. You're familiar with this text, and it is an unusual one, I realize, for this time uh, of year, but I think it will have significance for us anyway. Matthew chapter 4. How does it begin? Uh, uh, Matthew 4, 
uh, verse 1. What's the first word in your Bible? Yeah, then. So uh, this is an unusual chapter division. Uh, you know, it's an unusual way to start a conversation. If you came upon somebody and this was the first word, then, uh, it would beg the question, what are you talking about? Then implies something, an event has preceded it. So as good Bible students who respect the word of God, when we see a word like this at the beginning of a chapter, it forces us to back up to the end of the previous chapter to find out what the then is. And if you do so with me, we'll find out. So take a look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and we'll answer the question, uh, what is the then referring to? After being baptized... Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So now we know uh, the then is preceded by this marvelous event, the baptism of the Lord Jesus himself, uh, in the River Jordan. After that happened, according to Matthew 3, then, now we can proceed in chapter 4, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, he, the Lord Jesus, was led up by him, the Spirit is a person, into the wilderness. What wilderness? Well, it's this, Judean wilderness, which is our subject for tonight. Now, I find this to be rather... Uh, Marvelous to behold. He's there at the Jordan River, and if you can imagine the scene, peaceful and serene, uh, the entire Godhead, the Trinity, was involved. Here was the Spirit, and you could have uh, the, beheld him as a dove, and, and there was the Son of being baptized, and then the Father's words from on high, clearly declaring that this one, well, he is my Beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. What an event. What a time of rejoicing and exultation. And then, immediately after the same Spirit who was there present and coming upon the Lord as a dove, the same Spirit led uh, the Son of God into the wilderness there, well, frankly, to be accosted by the tempter, uh, Satan, the evil one, uh, which leads us to this question, why? <laughs> why, after this peaceful and serene setting, Jordan River, why from there uh, into the desolate, harsh circumstances uh, of the Judean wilderness? Well, there are many answers. I'd like to offer this one. I think it, he was led there by the Spirit so that you and I can find out more about what he's like. I'll tell you what he's like. Uh, he is sinless. He is without sin. He, he was tempted in a, uh, in a very dramatic way. I don't know if any here could have withstood temptation of that kind. Uh, uh, but he did, because his uh, his heart was to yield to the Father. He is holy through and through. He is without sin. He came in fleshed. Merry Christmas. 
meaningful Christmas. God, otherwise unseen, who transcends it all, became Emmanuel. He's the babe born in Bethlehem. He experienced all that humankind does, but for sin. He had no taste of it. He did not experience it. Well, I shouldn't put it that way. He did, I guess, on the cross. But that wasn't his. That was yours and that was mine. He was sinless, and so we're going to see how he, and only he is the perfect high priest, the one who not only can offer sacrifice for our sin, but who himself is that very sacrifice. You see, only he could do it because he has no sin of his own. And so we read about the character of the Lord Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And so this experience, which we will read about, which was his, tempted by the evil one in the Judean wilderness, is meant to show us who this Messiah Jesus really is. A high priest, sympathetic with us, and yet without sin. And so verse 2, back in Matthew 4, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Jesus was God, fully Jesus was man, fully, yet without sin, yet not without hunger. <laughs> See, this is his inexplicable humanity, sinless humanity, but still subject to hunger. So he's in a vulnerable condition. Interesting contrast with the temptation earlier on in a different place, the garden, not the wilderness, the garden in Genesis 3, ample supply of all that Adam and Eve needed. Uh, they didn't hunger at all. They had plenty of food. Under the best conditions, we saw what man is like. Under the worst conditions, we're seeing what the God-man is like. And so he became hungry, and in verse 3, the tempter, that Satan, came and said to him, if you are the son of God. Well, now, wait just a second, my fellow Bible students. What do you mean, if you are the son of God? Did we not read just a few moments ago in Matthew chapter 3, at the Lord's baptism, the very clear declaration of the father about him from on high. The father said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. But notice what the tempter does. You see, he's not only tempting the Lord, he's tempting you and I to doubt who Jesus is. If you are the son of God, flies in the face of the father's declaration already that he is the son of God. Folks, we got to be right about who Jesus is. I don't think there's a more critical issue uh, that faces us. Who is Jesus Christ. Who do you say he is? I uh, Listen, I'm going to tell you, it was so important to Satan that we people get it wrong that he called into question 
the very correct declaration which emanated from the Father in heaven about the Son. The Father said, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And Satan said, if you are, well, he said, prove it. Command that these stones become bread. He studies us, the tempter, you see. He realized that the Lord was hungry, 40 days, 40 nights, no food. So he tempts him with food, stones. Sometimes in the Judean wilderness, you can go there today, you can see stones that actually look like loaves of bread. And you know how it is when you're hungry or thirsty, everything looks edible at the time. And so so this is a very precise and strategic point of temptation uh, by the evil one. If you are, no, since you are the son of God, we worship you. No, but, but, but not for the one who would be like the most high God. If you are the son of God, command that these stones, you see, become Become bread. Now, what is, what is he saying? Prove, prove, prove it. Prove it if you're the son of God. Prove it by transforming stones into bread. So what's at the root of this temptation? I, I think it's uh, to see if Jesus would uh, tear himself from the Father and in independence take care of himself. I think the temptation has nothing to do with food. It has to do with autonomy from the Father. It has to do with doing your own thing. It has to do with uh, taking care of yourself. It has to do with not looking to God, not waiting on God, not trusting God. It has to do with, it looks good, I'm hungry, I'm taking it. Boy, it seemed to me that happened in Genesis chapter 3, and we're in a mess down to this very day because of, of it. So you see, this is a principal area of satanic deception. It's to tempt us into autonomy, independence, moving away from God, doing our own thing, thinking we are better caretakers of ourselves than almighty God, not waiting on him to legitimately take care of us and meet our needs, but taking the initiative ourselves. That's the direction of the temptation. You don't need God, says the tempter. You can feed yourself. But he, the Lord Jesus, answered and said, it is written. Do you know how significant those three words are? He didn't say, and God said. That's good too. He said something different. He didn't say, and God said. He said, it is written. In so doing, he is corroborating the authenticity, reliability, and ultimate authority of the written word of God. The Bible you have in your hand is being corroborated by the babe born in Bethlehem who grew to suffer and die on a cross and then who rose up from the last enemy death, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and may be very soon on his way to return, where the whole world will see him to be who he is, King of kings and Lord of lords. He, he is the one we have to look to when we try to figure out what our attitude towards the Bible ought to be. Jesus, who could have referred to anything, could have invoked any authority, 
said, he didn't say, and God said, no, he did better than that. He said, it is written, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the 66 books of scripture that you have, that's authoritative. It's as if the Lord Jesus is saying, it applies, it's relevant, this is what you look to. You don't take your marching orders uh, from your empty stomach, nor from the tempter who is enticing you to fill it your way. You take your marching orders, not from speculation about what God said in your own mind. You take your marching orders from inscripturated truth. Truth, God's word, inscribed in paper, subject, verb, syntax, context. You read it like you read anything else, except it's of the highest authority. You don't look to, I think, I feel. You don't worry about church tradition. You don't uh, 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 look to the opinions of man. You bow before the highest authority, the same one that the Lord Jesus drew on. You say, it is written. And you have victory over the evil one just as he did. It's not a matter of biceps or strength. You don't go head to head with Satan. No way you quote scripture to him you do just what the lord did it is written where well 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 it's written in the entire bible in this case in the entire old testament but specifically the lord is making reference to a book uh, in the old testament does your bible tell you which one it's deuteronomy and i don't know why but deuteronomy is the most oft quoted book by the Lord Jesus. So if you're tempted to move through the Old Testament too quickly, he didn't. I encourage you to camp out in Deuteronomy and even, yes, Leviticus. There's stuff even in Leviticus for all of us. So he's quoting here from Deuteronomy. And here's what it says. Man shall not live on bread alone. There's more to life than that which sustains our physical well-being. The essence of life is not the physical aspect of it. There's more to it. Man shall not live, therefore, on bread alone, but on every, every. When we say every word in the Bible is inspired in errant and authoritative, we're only taking our marching orders from the incarnate word, the enfleshed, Merry Christmas, the enfleshed word, the Lord Jesus. He said, you don't live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You know what he was saying? And he must have suffered immensely at this time. Uh, he hasn't only been without food for 40 days and 40 nights, but he's been uh, in one of the most desolate, dry places uh, on earth. We saw some appealing-looking animals earlier on, but there were some ravenous, predatory animals in the area in the Lord's day. He's wandering about in this area on foot, some of the harshest country on earth. And yet in spite of it all, he resists the temptation to act independently of God, his father, in an attempt to meet his own needs. He's hungry, but he seeks instead the bread of God's word. The point, it is better to obey God's word than to satisfy 
your desires your way. They may be legitimate desires, but when there is a vain attempt to satisfy legitimate desires our way, oftentimes the attempt is illegitimate. And the Lord Jesus said, no, the essence of life is not to satisfy one's physical hunger outside of the will of God and apart from him. The essence of life is to chew on, to meditate on, to digest, to assimilate, to take in, to mature in accordance with every word that proceeds from the mouth of, aren't you ready to say, oh God, I would rather it be physically not well with me and well with my soul. Wouldn't you say that? Don't you know enough about the Lord Jesus to opt for spiritual well-being if you had to choose over against physical well-being? And so the Lord Jesus said, no, I, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm going to submit. I'm going to yield at this point of temptation, to the fullness of the words of my Father and not to your temptation. Well, Jesus is absolutely finished with this temptation, but the tempter is not yet finished tempting him. And so verse 5, then, so we have another time indicator after what we just read, then the devil took him into the holy city. Do you know what city that is? Yeah, it's Jerusalem. So the devil took him into the holy city. The venue changes strikingly. So, so we're going from wilderness of Judea to the capital of Judea. And he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. You're seeing some photos of what we believe to be that very spot. The pinnacle of the temple. It was the highest place in elevation in the temple complex. You know, the temple complex in Jerusalem was not a building. It was a series of buildings and structures and even porches open on one side, porticos, cloisters. And it appears that the pinnacle of the temple was a roof, a flat roof on the top of one of these cloisters, which made it the highest point in elevation at the temple complex. It overlooked the Kidron Valley. So if you stood on the pinnacle of the temple and looked down, you might even get a little woozy. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, thousands of years ago wrote about this elevation. Let me read to you. He gives a description of the cloister and the pinnacle of the temple. These are the words of Josephus. This cloister deserves to be mentioned better than any other under the sun. For while the valley, it's the Kidron Valley, was very deep and its bottom could not be seen if you looked from above into the depth This farther, vastly high elevation of the cloister stood upon that height insomuch that if anyone looked down from the top of the battlements or down both those altitudes, he would be giddy while his sight could not reach to such an immense depth. It's the pinnacle of the temple. Uh, The estimates on how high it is vary, but it was at least several hundred feet above the Kidron Valley. It's the pinnacle of the temple. And it was from this very place, 
after the temptation in the Judean wilderness that Satan escorted the Savior to. And there, at the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, uh, he presented to him another temptation. It's this, verse 6. If you are... Boy, here we go again. Didn't he do that already? If you are... Don't you see? It's a constant attempt to raise doubts in people's minds about the personhood of the Lord Jesus. If you get the personhood of the Lord Jesus right, everything else will fall in place. If you underestimate his humanity or divinity, or if you overestimate one above the other, if, you, if, if you're out of balance... you. If you're wrong about the Lord Jesus, you're probably going to be wrong about everything else. And so Satan knows that every cult group I know of is fundamentally wrong in this one area. Wrong about who the Lord Jesus is. And so here we go, Satan, again. If you are the son of God, now he says, throw yourself down. Can you imagine it? There he is, uh, the Lord Jesus in human form. Uh, on the pinnacle of the temple, several hundred feet above the Kidron Valley, even Josephus said you could get dizzy if you're up there and you look down. Satan takes him to this spot and he says, jump. And then Satan says, for it is written. <laughs> Satan, the Bible teacher. Satan quoting, he does, you know, he quotes scripture. Every aberration, every religious aberration, every cult group quotes scripture. But they do it as did Satan, out of context, incorrectly, and without application. So why does Satan do it? Because he realized how important was the written word of God to the Savior. The Savior just invoked it in the prior temptation in the wilderness. And so Satan says, okay, I'll play. And so he says, how about this? Throw yourself down. Because in that same Bible you quote from, it is written, and now he quotes, indeed, from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. This is what it says. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Satan says, okay, you love the word of God. Uh, you respect it. Uh, you invoke its highest authority. You say it is written to get you out of a jam. Well, it's written that you should trust God. Throw yourself off of this because after all, if God loves you, if you're his kid, if you're his only begotten son with whom he is well pleased, he'll give his angels charge concerning you. You won't get hurt. Of course, that's not the intended meaning of Psalm 91 at all. But Satan invokes it. And Jump, says he. If you are God's son, surely you can count on your father to save you. So what exactly is Satan up to here? Well, let me explain this to you. The Jewish people of the day believed that when Messiah comes, when he returns, he will do so in a rather dramatic manner. He will drop down in some way from the sky and alight in a very dramatic way at the temple. In fact, 
on the roof of the temple. That was the popular belief in the day of Jesus. And the Jewish people derived it from a text in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Here's the phrase. The Lord will suddenly come to his temple. That's what Malachi, the Jewish prophet, said would be the manner of the Messiah's appearing. The Lord will suddenly come to his temple. So based on this, the Jewish people of the day concluded that one of the clear indications of the Messiah is that he's going to dramatically fall from on high and step down somehow at the roof of the temple. And that's exactly why Satan is doing what he's doing. He knows Jewish culture. He knows Jewish history. He's a student of all this. And so he's essentially saying... Why don't you do what they expect the Messiah to do when he comes? And if you do what the crowd expects of the Messiah, they will surely acknowledge you as the Messiah. Jump! The people expect the Messiah to land on the roof of the temple. Show them who you are. After all, your father will protect you. Why don't you declare, demonstrate your messiahship now? Do you know how serious that is? You know what now is? Now is before the cross. That's what Satan is up to. He's trying to tempt the Savior to save himself, not us. He's trying to tempt the Savior to avoid the cross. He's telling the Savior, don't declare your Saviorship God's way. Do it your way. Your way could be a crowd-pleasing, dramatic and striking declaration of the fact that you are the Messiah. Touch down on the roof, jump off, your father will give his angels charge concerning you. All of the people will strike from the record all other messianic pretenders to the throne. They will know this is our Messiah, this is our Messiah. You can come into your glory without the cross. That's what he's up to. You do not have to declare that you're the Savior the Father's way. You can do it your way. And what was the Father's way for his son? Folks, it's the way of the cross. That is the Father's way for the son. It's unavoidable. The time would indeed come when Jesus would be declared as the Savior, as the Messiah. But the cross must Come first. It's unavoidable if the Savior, in fact, came to save. And he did. So, folks, crucifixion must, even in the will of the Father who loved the Son, crucifixion must precede resurrection. Humiliation must precede exaltation. Being put down into a grave must precede being raised up to the Father's right hand. The crown of thorns must precede 
the Lord's crown of glory. That's the way it is. But Satan desperately wants Jesus to avoid the cross. And so he seeks to tempt him to come into his glory without the cross. Do this thing, says he. Jump. Give the people what they're looking for. Let them crown you as their king without the necessity of suffering and humiliation impaled on a cross. But this very thing, the cross was the father's will for his beloved son. It was the father's will for the son to suffer and die for us. For God so loved the world that he gave up his son. This was God's way for his son. And this is the only way by which you and I could be saved from our sin. Salvation is what the Savior came for. And the Savior wants to deliver us indeed, but Satan wants to destroy us. And we would be eternally destroyed, but for the cross. So Satan sought to tempt the Lord to bypass the cross. And he failed miserably. Satan failed miserably. And the Lord Jesus took the cross. And because Satan failed, you and I have hope. Hope of a pardon. Hope of a cleansing from sin. Hope of adoption into God's family. Hope of seeing him again. Hope of being with him in the resurrection. Hope of worshiping around his throne on into eternity forevermore. Hope of never being left behind. Hope of being known by him, loved by him, embraced by him, adopted by him. Hope of being wedded to him. Hope of consummating uh, the wedding at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Hope, hope, hope. Because the Lord Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Not my will, but the Father's will be done. And his will was the cross. So this leads me to our life lesson from our visit to the wilderness of Judea and the secondary place of temptation, the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, it's this. First the cross and then the crown. This was the way for the Lord. Why shouldn't it be the way for us also? First the cross. Take up your cross and bear it. As it was... For our Savior, why shouldn't it be for those of us who are the saved? We should not be so terribly surprised <laughs> by the struggles, by the challenges, by the dying to ourself that is taking place daily, by the struggles, by even the fiery ordeal which comes upon us that we may be purified and perfected. No, no. We shouldn't be surprised that the world doesn't recognize us, doesn't understand us, humiliates us, puts us down comes up with sitcoms that make fun of us here on Christmas, all kinds of things that blaspheme the Savior, comedy shows that poke fun at what he did for us, songs that have nothing to do with his redemptive work in coming as Emmanuel, Santas instead of the Savior. People looking for Santa to come to town instead of for the Savior to return in all of his 
glory. We shouldn't be surprised that all that is happening. We shouldn't be embittered. We should try to rise above cynicism. We should keep a good demeanor and a good spirit. Uh, the Lord is near. <laughs> and, and we ought to know as it was for him, so too it has to be with us because the pupil is not greater than the teacher. Rabbi Jesus went through all of this first you see the crucifixion, then the exaltation, uh, first the humiliation, and then the glorification, first the being put down, and then the being raised up. And as it was for him, so it will be for first the cross. Thank God for it. And then the best is yet to come. I am not looking for hope by reading the news. <laughs> I am hopeful because of the good news of the defeat of the evil one and the victory of the Savior. And I share in victory in Jesus. This is all by his grace. I know where I've come from. I know why I'm here and I know where I'm going. And so do you. It's a bit of a journey. It's a wilderness journey. For ours, it's not the Judean wilderness, but it's a wilderness of sorts anyway. And there are predators all around us and we suffer the hardships of life. There are hungers, sometimes of an emotional kind, sometimes of a psychological, interpersonal, physical, vocational, financial. I understand that. And what's more, the Lord Jesus did. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted. Don't you see? That's why all this happened. He has been tempted in all things just as we are. But here's the exception. Yet without sin. Because of his victory, (laughs) we will share in it. He's the first fruits of resurrection. As it was with him, it has to be with us. First the cross, then the crown, and the best is yet to come. We will sing together victory in Jesus forever, 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 forever. An eternity of Christmas carols and worship and celebration. Oh, my, my, my. The best is yet to come. Just when you're tempted to despair, get up. <laughs> Just from you're tempted to Take care of yourself. Stop. Just when you're tempted to do things your way because you think you can take better care of you than the God who gave you life. Stop. Say it is written. I don't live by bread alone. I feast on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I love Christmas. (laughs) But I don't wait for it to rejoice in the Lord Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord Always we serve a victorious savior and we now know of a defeated foe whose time is really, really short. So, Lord Jesus, we bow once again before you in our posture, but more importantly, in our hearts and lives. We submit, we yield, not under coercion any more than you did to the Father's will, gladly. Because of the love relationship. Thank you for everything you've done. Thank you for coming. Thank you for all that you went through on our behalf. Thank you for demonstrating your marvelous power over death. We praise you for rising up from it. We're glad you've ascended. You're in your rightful place right now. We look up to thee, Lord Jesus, in spite of what the world is saying. 
We look up to thee. Thank you for victory, yours, and now shared with ours. You're the first fruits of resurrection after humiliation, so too will be our course as well. First the cross and then the crown. Oh, God, we cannot wait. For the best is yet to come. And until you, the best, come again, we got plenty to do. Help us to be so filled with the joy of our salvation that it's a very contagious thing that attracts others. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.